Good morning. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. In the Pew Bible in front of you, that's page 677. And this sermon this morning is really about evangelism. Uh, so far in the book of Matthew, we've been uh, looking at how uh, Christ was born, Christ comes into the world, and, and he's coming to uh, save people, to bring salvation to the world, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, as it says in, in, in Romans. And there really is this global, uh, local and global aspect to the coming of Christ and to the preaching uh, of his message. And then he was baptized, affirmed by his father, and then he went into uh, the desert to be tempted and to be proven. Uh, and then now, this week, he is going to uh, start his full ministry. And so for for all of us, I, I would say this. Uh, when we think about uh, evangelism, who should be doing evangelism, how do you do evangelism, uh, you, you, if you are a believer, if you are a Christ follower, follower, that means that you have heard the gospel call. The Lord has reached out to you and said, come follow me. And you have said, okay, I respond to that. I respond to the gospel call. You have invited me into a relationship with you, and I'm going to start following you. And I believe in you. I believe in you. I believe in you, uh, Lord Jesus. And then after that, you start experiencing this transformation that uh, becoming a Christ follower, being a worshiper of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, asking him to forgive you of your sins and come into your life. The Holy Spirit comes into you. And then you also start experiencing this amazing transformation. You, you believe in him, you follow him, and then he starts to change you. Uh, I'm different now that I have become a Christ follower. And then uh, that next step after that, that next step is... Um, to start talking about it, to start, start, start talking about it with other people. Uh, there's a ministry that here, happens here on Tuesday nights called Celebrate Recovery. And uh, the, the steps and the principles of Celebrate Recovery really sort of mirror the gospel message. Of course, it was built upon uh, the Beatitudes and the gospel message. And that first uh, step is to say, life is unmanageable for me. My life, my hurts, my habits, my hangups, the things that I've done, my life has become completely unmanageable. I need somebody outside of myself who's more powerful than myself, holier than myself, more pure than myself, more, more moral than myself to transform my life. And that is a picture of conversion. And then that, that 12th step down there at the bottom uh, says, you know what, I'm going to tell other people. And I'm going to uh, encourage everybody else that's also struggling with something, everybody else who has a hurt, a habit, a hangup, in their life, I'm going to pass this on because this is too good to keep for myself. Uh, God has done something too great in my life for me to keep it to myself. And when I see somebody out there that's struggling with the exact same thing that I have struggled with, I want to give them the testimony that it doesn't have to be like this. Your life doesn't have to be like this. You don't have to live um, in, in this kind of bondage. And uh, you don't have to, there is a way for you to have the hurt, all the hurt done in your life be redeemed. And then you'll start living a healthier life. Your life will become manageable again in Christ. And then you'll find somebody else that you need to tell uh, as well. And so uh, evangelism, the way that God has set it up is that you experience Christ. You begin to understand Christ. Your life is transformed by Jesus Christ. And then how can you keep it to yourself? How can you keep it to yourself? And so in our uh, passage today, we have Jesus having been born, having grown up, having been affirmed by his father, having been proven after the temptation, he now begins to proclaim the message. And that's what we're looking at today. Lord, please help us to look at these scriptures properly. Help us to understand, Holy Spirit, please be our teacher. 
be our teacher. In Jesus' name, amen. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. And that's, that's verse 12. And it's John the baptizer, not John the apostle, John the baptizer. He is sort of the predecessor, the predecessor who came before Christ to prepare uh, the way for Christ. And so when Jesus heard that John had been put in, in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. He was in Judea. Uh, the baptism, that was all down in Judea. All the temptation, everything, that was down in Judea. So Jesus has been hanging around in Judea for a little while. When he comes back uh, from uh, having been tempted in the wilderness, he, uh, he's, he's going to go back to John, to, to where the, the action's happening, and he hears John's been put in prison. And that is when Jesus leaves. Now, don't think that Jesus went to Galilee because he was afraid, okay? He wasn't afraid. And then throughout his ministry, he will go back down to Judea and to Jerusalem and right into the temple courts and say some pretty audacious things, do some pretty audacious things, and stir up quite the hornet's nest every single time that he goes there, such that, I believe it's in the book of John, it says several times, uh, they wanted to lay hands on him, but they couldn't because his time hadn't come yet, okay? So Jesus, not out of fear, goes to Galilee. He just says, well, it's a little too hot around here right now. Uh, maybe it's not the right place to be right now. I'm going, to go up to, I'm going to go up to Galilee. Now, why was John in prison? Why was John in prison? You can read a, a story, the story, the whole story about it later in the book of Matthew. I'm, I'm not going to read that whole story. But what I'm really going to say is just that John confronted culture to its face, to the most powerful people in the culture. Uh, and what he really kind of did was he got political. He got political. Uh, and, and you're not supposed to get political. You're supposed to keep your religion and your politics all separate and keep them to yourself and keep them out of public and everything like that, except that every once in a while, culture crosses the line. Politics or politicians cross the line. And how in the world can a believer, somebody part of a society, just stay silent, just say, well, it's none of my business. It's, it's, it's me, not them. And so John the Baptist saw uh, Herod, and so we have John the Baptist over here baptizing Jesus on the, uh, the other side over here. By the way, I, I always like to put our work up here, but it's hard to find a good picture of John the Baptist where he's either not baptizing Jesus or not had his head chopped off. So I chose the baptizing Jesus one instead of the head chopped off one. Okay? All right, you're welcome. Um, so we have Jesus over here, and who's this guy over here? That's Herod. That's Herod. And what happened was, what happened, what got John in, what got John in trouble was that he called out a political leader, the most powerful person in the land, the most ruthless person in the land, for committing a very public sin. Herod, of course, he's got his wife, and he's got all his harem of women. He's got everything he wanted. But his brother had a, a wife that he wanted. And so uh, Herod orchestrated a divorce between his brother and his brother's wife, and he took her home very publicly, right in front of everybody. And it was so audacious that John the Baptist said, Folks, I've been talking to all of us, the common people, about repenting of our sins, coming back to God, getting rid of all the sin in our life, and then looky here, the one who sets the tone for the culture, the most powerful person in the land, here he is doing, committing such an audacious, uh, uh, what's the word? Um, uh, shameless, this is what it was, uh, 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 a foreign language word was coming to my mind. Anyway, um, a shameless sin right there in front of all these people. And John said, folks, I cannot stay quiet about it. I got to speak up. I'm going to confront him right to his face. And I don't want to be the political church. And I don't want to be the, the politics preaching pastor or anything. 
But every once in a while, just so you know, uh, the, the Christian's moral values and the biblical message crosses over into the public arena. It crosses into the, the politics of our nation. You see, there's this whole thing called worldview. And in, inside my whole worldview is my, uh, my faith, my faith. And the thing is, my faith isn't my whole worldview because over here it's Cubs fan as well. That's my worldview, okay? That has absolutely nothing to do with my faith. But also my views on, say, the Laffer curve, if you know what that is, is also part of this worldview, okay? It has nothing to do with my faith, but it's all in my worldview. And everyone, but every once in a while, culture does something that's so out there, so audacious, so shameless right in front of us. Every once in a while, the Christian can't keep it quiet. We have to confront culture from time to time. We, can, we need to be civilized about it. We have to be understanding about it. We need to speak the truth in love and be very gracious about things. And remember, uh, the difference between faith and politics or your religion and your politics is that your faith is the, a lot of times it's just the things that you value. These are the things that I value. These are the things that I think are so important. My politics is how I implement those. And many of us in here probably have the same exact values on things. We, we, have, we value the same thing. We think that these things are important, but how we would implement those in the public arena may be very different. And we can get very um, cross with each other over how we implement those things, okay? So uh, most people in here would say, I value life. I value the home. I value family. I value those things. But how we uh, implement laws that affect those kinds of things, what we restrict, what we forbid, things like that, be very different, and we can get really crossways with each other, okay? Um, and, and, and that's why we tend to keep it quiet. That's why we tend to keep it to ourselves, because we don't want to get crossways with each other, especially in this room. I don't want to get crossways with any of you. But every once in a while, the discussion has to be had. Every once in a while, we have to bring these things up. Every once in a while, we have to confront uh, culture. And if we're going to talk about some kind of hot button issue, and I've talked about hot button issues up here a few times, and they are some of my least popular sermons, and I've gotten feedback, pushback, not just feedback, pushback on them, okay? Fine. When John confronted culture, it got ugly. And for you, if you're going to confront culture, if you're going to venture an opinion out there, if you're going to talk about how something ought to be implemented, it may be the Spirit of God pushing you because it can't stay quiet. Our faith can't be quiet. We're supposed to be salt and light in the world. You can't hide it. If salt loses its savor, you throw it out. Do you put your light under a bushel? No. You let it shine. So in the public arena, if you find yourself in a situation where I need to confront culture, I need to confront politics or politicians or their ways or, or whatever, be prepared for it to get ugly. It got ugly for John. But that doesn't mean that he sinned or that he should have kept his mouth shut. No. He was doing the right thing. And if, if uh, we're going to be a church that impacts culture, that impacts the lives here, we have to talk about these things every once in a while. So whatever the issue is, if people are talking about it, let's sit, let's sit around. Let's pray before we get into a very difficult conversation. Let's open the Bible and let the Bible guide our values, even guide our actions, guide our implementation of whatever policy we'd have that we probably have no power over anyway. 
and then we pray about it at the end, bookended all with prayer and grace and understanding. But we don't shrink back from the conversation. Next year's an election year. It's going to get ugly. How many of you are tempted to just go to camp for, the, <laughs> for a year and stay out of it? But Christians cannot retreat from culture. We cannot retreat from culture. We've got to be in there, okay? All right. Um, so, leaving Nazareth, he, Jesus, went and lived in Capernaum. Capernaum uh, Nazareth is in Galilee. Uh, Capernaum is in Galilee, both of them by Galilee, which was by the lake. What's the lake called? The Sea of Galilee, okay? It's also called Lake Tiberias, but it's the Sea of Galilee, okay? It's a lake uh, in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. Zebulun and Naphtali are not towns. They are, uh, when the children of Israel came into the promised land, there were 12 tribes, and, and Zebulun and Naphtali were a tribe. So think of this as a state or a county or something like that in, in northern Israel, okay? Um, and so Jesus left Judea, hotbed place that it was, and he went up uh, to Galilee. He went up to Galilee. And so let me tell you a little bit about Judea and Galilee. Here you can see Judea down here. It's a very, the very large yellow area there. And then Samaria is in between, and that's a whole different sermon. But then there's Galilee, this purple place up here at the top. And they are very different places, okay? They are very different places geographically and even culturally and all that. Um, and for, I have to credit, uh, I, I have to give a lot of credit for where I get all my information. I don't, this isn't all original research. My, my father-in-law guided me a lot in this sermon this week. The commentaries guided me a lot in this sermon this week. And I, I learned something that I didn't actually know before. So Judea down here is a very dry place, very rocky and dry place. Whereas Galilee up here is a whole bunch of valleys and, and um, uh, pasture lands, incredible agricultural area. And so this area down here, even though it's the biggest, it's actually more sparsely populated than the smallest area uh, up here. Galilee was quite highly populated because it could sustain that many people. There was enough agriculture that could be done up there to sustain that many people. It was the, uh, it, it the breadbasket of, of, of all Israel here. Uh, culturally, they were also very different. Judea, uh, and anything that happens in Judea all flows out of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the uh, you know, the temple, the temple culture, uh, that, that controls all of life in Jerusalem. And life in Jerusalem controls all of life in Judea. And all of life in Judea influences, maybe not controls completely, but influences all of Israel. Everything, everything highly Jewish comes out of Judea. Um, but it was a place, um, it was a place that I would almost compare it, if I'm going to get political, I'll compare it to Washington, D.C., Okay. Uh, in Washington, D.C., wouldn't, you wouldn't call all the politicians in, in Washington, D.C. the most free thinkers and creative people out there. They're parts of institutions that want to keep their control. They're a part of a monopoly on power. They do not want new ideas, new faces, new, new things coming in. It's, a, it's an institution that wants to protect its own, okay? And down here in Judea, you have this, um, the, this clique of people called the Sadducees, and they are in control of the temple and all temple culture right there, Okay? And then you have the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are very much in control of daily life and, uh, uh, for people down here. And they are not interested in resting control or losing control and, and submitting control of that to anybody, uh, let alone Jesus. But up here in Galilee, and that's to say nothing down here of the, of the clique of Herod, who was in political power. We didn't really care that much about, so much about 
political or a temple culture or people's daily life. They just want to stay in power. They just want to stay in power. That's it. And the Romans are also their huge presence, and they just don't want a war. Okay? They're just there to put down any kind of rebellion that might crop up. Come up here to Galilee, and everything that's farther, however far you are from the capital, if you're in a, in a country that's it's very much an, uh, a monarchy or a dictatorship or anything like that, the farther you get from the capital, the more freedom you've actually got. That's the same as it was in China when I was in China. If you're close to Beijing, Beijing controls everything. But if you're way out there, Beijing has a little less say in your life, a little less hold in your life, okay? So you come up here to Galilee, and uh, the Sadducees aren't a, huge, uh, aren't a huge influence up there because the temple's way down there. The Pharisees, they're a big, uh, they're a big influence anywhere that they are, but the, the clique of Herod's not there, but the Romans are there. In fact, there's Romans and Greeks all over the place because it's so beautiful. And so many uh, non-Jewish people made their vacation homes on the hillsides around uh, the Sea of Galilee. And so their culture has creeped in. And for, for that reason, the people of Judea saw the people of Galilee as contaminated. They called it Galilee of the Gentiles. Gentiles all around them, north, south, east, west, right there in the middle of them. There's Gentile culture everywhere. And so they're contaminated people. But... They were also people that didn't have as much uh, Jerusalem control or, or Herod control over them. And they were people who were sort of, what the commentary said was, they're ready for a fight. They're ready for a fight. A lot of rebellions, a lot of insurrections, a lot of uh, maybe false messiahs all crop up in Galilee, ready for a fight, ready for a fight. So these people were ready for a new message, ready for a new message. And so Jesus leaves Judea, old institutional stuck in the mud Judea, very strict Judea, Judea that thinks that they're better than everybody else, and goes up to Galilee, where everybody says, ooh, is a new leader, new guy, new, new Messiah, new somebody? All right, let's hear what he's got to say. And Jesus enjoyed incredible popularity uh, in Galilee for the first several years of his, uh, well, for the first couple of years of his ministry. In fact, when, when he came, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem was with a whole bunch of people, a, a huge entourage of Galileans that came uh, that, that came with him. And Matthew, recording the events of the ministry of Jesus, says, you know what? That reminds me of something that the prophet said in Isaiah chapter 9. And he says, so this was all done to fulfill what the prophet said. The land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death a light has dawned. You see in the Old Testament, that northern part of Israel, uh, they, they had some of the worst problem with idolatry. They were some of the first that got, uh, got oppressed by an outside force. The Assyrians came in and just laid waste to the whole place. In fact, those 10 lost tribes of Israel that people talk about, that's all in Galilee. That's all in the north up there. God punished them very harshly for their idolatry. There are people, that, uh, when they come back, now they have sort of a mixed ancestry and now there's uh, Greeks and Romans all over the place, too. The Judeans see them as an impure, uh, maybe, uh, maybe not as bad as the Samaritan, but they're Galilee of the Gentiles. They're not Galilee of the stronghold of Israel. They're Galilee of the Gentiles. And into that, the Lord sees fit to say, you know what? These people who, in the Old Testament, they lived in darkness for a long time. They lived in idolatry for a long time. But guess what? They're ready for a message. And anybody who's ready for a message... I'll give them a message. That's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to do. And so Jesus, 
begins preaching. And what does he preach? He preaches the same thing John did, a big endorsement that, hey, John's message, John's message wasn't John's, and Jesus isn't tacking on to John's message. John's message came from God. So why wouldn't Jesus start preaching John's message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And he sent his disciples out after he chooses the disciples and they're with him for a little while. He says, okay, it's time for you guys to go out. And this is the message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And this, uh, this phrase, sometimes your different Bible translations actually will kind of translate it differently. And I, I think that that means something. The, the kingdom of heaven has come, sometimes they'll say. The kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven has come near. What are we supposed to make of all those different little connotations? In Christian circles or in theological circles, when we talk about the kingdom of God, uh, we often talk about it as an already not yet thing. It's an already not yet thing. Uh, so has the kingdom of God come? Yes. Is it coming? Yes. Are we looking forward to it in the future? Yes. And that is the way that you should be living. That is the way that you should be living. In the victory of the established kingdom of heaven, the established kingdom of God. God is reigning. Jesus is Lord. And he will be Lord. And he has become Lord. Past, present, and future. <laughs> All of that right at the same time. And that is our message. Now let's talk about you. Let's talk about your evangelism. You have become now, if you are a believer, if you are a Christ follower, if you are somebody who has experienced his grace, his mercy, his transformation, then it's time for you to start becoming a gospel herald. It's time for you to start becoming a proclaimer of the gospel that you have experienced. No matter how inadequate you are, no matter how inadequate you think you are, no matter how little theology or how little Bible you know, you're probably more ready than you think. You have two things. You have the simple gospel message, Jesus died on the cross to save you from your sins, okay? It's a very simple gospel message. You're armed with that. The other thing that you're armed with is your testimony, your personal experience of who was I? Who was I before I met Jesus? And then how did I meet Jesus? How did that come about? How did I hear about Jesus? And then after that, it's, well, this is what I'm like now. He's changed me. I'm a different person than I was before. And that is good news because I don't like who I was before. So who are you? Do you not like who you are now? Fine. I've been in your place. Let me introduce you to Jesus. And in the future, he will transform your heart and mind. You become a different person. Now, this word, um, this word that it uses, the word for preach there in that, uh, in that verse, it says he began to preach. He began to kerosene is what it is in Greek. Um, he began to herald is what is, is uh, how is maybe the, the perfect translation, except nobody talks that way. So Jesus began to herald to people, repent for the kingdom has come near. Uh, what it means is Jesus began to act like somebody who heard from a king and then came and gave us a message. Jesus started to act like that. He started to talk like that. And of course, they grew up in a place where it, there was a monarchy. All right, So there are a whole bunch of heralds that go around telling you what the king just said everybody has to do now. And so Jesus came just like that person, just like that person who heard from the king. Which king? King Herod? No, King God, the father on the throne. That is the king that he heard from. And he began uh, to start, uh, he, began, he, he, he came and he began to herald uh, that message. And now the herald speaks. And when the herald speaks, you better listen. You better listen. 
It's not like listening to the news these days where you say, oh, whatever, it's just propaganda. I don't think I'll pay attention to half of this stuff, okay? It's not like that. When the herald comes, he comes with news and orders, okay? This is your reality, and if you deny this reality, there's going to be trouble for you, okay? So Jesus comes and heralds, uh, and he's speaking on the behalf of the king. He's speaking on behalf of the king, and the king is the judge of all the land. He is the Lord. He is the one who... Uh, is in control, and if he is not in control, he gets in control, and you don't want him to send the army to take control, okay? He speaks with certainty. He knows exactly what he heard from the king. Jesus knows exactly what God wants and what God wants um, for people to hear, and he speaks with great authority. He speaks with great authority behind him because he speaks the words of the king. So for us, for us, if we're going to go out there and we're going to do sort of the same thing, sort of the same thing, there are two or three things that you need to know. Number one, you speak on behalf of the king. You're not giving your opinions. You're not giving your own uh, druthers or, or whatever. When you are speaking, you are giving the message that God has for the people of the world. When you see somebody who does not know the Lord, they are far from God, they are estranged from him, the good God on the throne has a message for that person. And not everybody has it, but you have it. You have it. What are you going to do? What would happen to the herald if the herald was sent out from the king and the castle with a message and then didn't go proclaim it? Well, it wouldn't be very good for the herald, and it wouldn't be very good for the people who needed that message and didn't get it. The king has entrusted you with a message. Don't keep it to yourself. Make sure that everybody who needs to hear it Hears it. Speak with certainty. Speak with certainty. Now, I, that might be hard because if people have very difficult questions of theology, I guess I'm not certain of every single aspect of theology uh, that there is out there. But I can tell you what I, I can speak with certainty about. I can speak with certainty about the, the gospel message of Jesus dying on the cross to save people from their sins. I gave it to you this morning that uh, sin is so bad and God is going to judge it, but he doesn't wish to judge you because he loves you. So he has transferred your guilt to the Lamb in the Old Testament and to Jesus in the New Testament. And he who had no sin, Jesus, who had no sin, uh, he didn't just bear sin. You know what the Scripture says? He became sin. He became the essence of sin while he was on the cross. What a terrible thing to happen to the most pure uh, being who has ever been. But he became the whole essence of sin and God placed all sin on him, and God poured out all wrath on him. Believe in that, and you'll enjoy the benefits, all right? That I can speak of with certainty. I can also speak of my own personal experience with certainty. I know me. I know what I was like. I know what happened. I know what I am now. I can speak with certainty of what Christ has done in my life, and you can too, more than you think, more than your maybe confidence will allow you, but you can speak with certainty of what it, how it has impacted you to become a Christ follower. Do it. Do it. And you speak with authority. You speak with authority. Who are you to tell me such things? Well, Christians get nailed for it all the time for just saying, but the Bible says. But it's no small thing that the Bible says. The Bible is the most enduring book of all time, read by more people, banned in more places than any other book in the world. It has authority behind it. It has the ability to shape a life 
and even a society in it, to shape a world in it. When you say the Bible says, when you start telling stories from the Bible, when you start telling people what Jesus said, it makes a difference. It has authority behind it. What does he promise to us? When the king, when God sends out a word into the world to do something in the world, it doesn't come back void. He is, he is able to speak uh, and to do. And when you speak the word of God, you're not speaking just somebody else's opinion, somebody else's word, somebody's musings. No, the creator of all the heavens and the earth, that is whose authority um, that you're speaking with. And maybe it's because I grew up in the Bible Belt. But there, were, there were times that uh, when I was at work with people or whatever, I remember uh, very specifically this guy named Curtis. And I worked at a lumber yard with him. Uh, and, um, you know, I'm a Bible thumper, obviously. I'm, 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 uh, I know the, the word quite well, and I knew it, I knew it well then. I was, I was one of those, okay? Uh, and there were several times together that we were working that he'd say, all right, Wes, we're going to do this job, and it's going to take some time. Tell me a Bible story. Okay? Maybe that's just because I grew up in the Bible Belt. But when people know that you know the word, they may ask you what the word says, okay? When you speak, you speak with authority. And if they can really see Christ's uh, transforming work in your life, your life will start to have some authority and your life will endorse the Bible. If you say, this is what I was like, Christ has transformed me. Christ, the, everything you need to know about Jesus is in the Bible. Then they'll, they really might start saying, well, what does the Bible say? What does it really say? A lot of people disrespect the Bible, never opened it. Okay? All right. And I would say this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is coming near. We'll probably get you labeled as a crazy person in the United States now if you go on a street corner and start, doing, and start saying that. Okay? In Jesus' day, that sounds like the opening of a good sermon. That sounds like something I want to listen to. Let me, let me hear what this guy's got. Okay? These days may not work out that well for you. Go ahead and do it. Go ahead and do it. Tell me how it went. All right? Let's learn together. If it goes well, I'm going to start doing it. All right? Um, most of the time when you tell people, the way you're living is wrong and you have to change it, they throw up a wall very quickly because they don't want to hear you preach at them, right? There's a guy. There's a guy named Randy Newman, and uh, he's Jewish. And he says one of the most interesting, interesting things about Jewish people is that they ask questions all the time, and they're not always, they don't always ask questions because they're curious. It's just the way they talk, all right? So he says, if you go to one of my family uh, events, and I, and I say, Aunt whoever, Aunt Esther, look all, Aunt Esther, uh, how are you doing? She won't say fine. She'll say, compared to what? Compared to who? Isn't this good pie? Compared to what? You know? What isn't good pie? You know? They just, they just, talk with questions all the time. And in a way, it can be hilarious. In a way, it can be very frustrating, okay? But he wrote a book. He wrote a book because he's, he grew up Jewish and he became a Christian. That's a big deal. And he started trying to share with all of his family, how is it that somebody comes out of Judaism into Christianity? This is a very hard thing to do. It's the hardest ministry in the world. And he said, I did it. I did, you know, and not with everybody, but I did it by Asking questions, evangelism by asking questions. The book's called Questioning Evangelism. 
If you want, I've got it on my shelf. If you want it, I'll give it to you. So instead of saying, you're wrong, you need to repent in his culture with his family and probably with you and all of your workspaces and school places where and your neighbors and everything too, the best thing you can do is start by asking questions. Tell me about your life. Who are you? What does that do? How, how, you know, how do you like this? What's your favorite whatever? And when you start asking people questions, they start opening up and divulging. Because everybody's got a story, and everybody wants to tell their story. Okay, And when you keep doing that over and over and over again, you'll finally hit on something. This is where they need good news. This is where they need to hear the gospel message. So how can I keep asking questions so I can get to them to the place where they understand their need for Jesus Christ? And uh, I took a note from Dr. Phil. I don't know if any of you have ever, I've never watched Dr. Phil. I just know uh, Dr. Phil, he's a, t- he's a TV psychiatrist, psychologist. And he's from Oklahoma, so you can trust him. Maybe not, maybe not, I don't know. But he's got this famous line that he uses when people start talking about their life and their problem and how they reacted to their problem and how they sought to fix their problem. He'll say, and how is that working out for you? And what a terrible question. Because almost always people are going to say, the problem was bad, I tried to fix it, I made it worse. It's not working out for me. That's why I still have the problem. And when you ask people questions, you know what you're really doing? You're getting them to the end of themselves. How is that working out for you? Not good. What are you going to do next? I have no idea. I'm out of ideas. I'm out of energy. I'm out of emotional energy to even confront this struggle anymore. What am I supposed to do? And then they'll give you a question. What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to change? What am I supposed to believe? How am I supposed to live? And then you'll say, well, all I can tell you is my life and my story. And I got to the end of myself in this way because this was happening and everything that I tried failed too. And then I met Jesus. Would you like to hear about Jesus? Give them back that question. And if they really are at the end of themselves, they'll say, yes. Yes, I would like to hear about Jesus. And you'll get the opportunity to crack open, say the book of Matthew, and start talking about Jesus. This is the family. This is his family of origin. Tell me about your family of origin. You think his family of origin was perfect? Nope. Let's talk about some of these people. Let's talk about how he was born, the the difficult society, difficult situation he was born into, how he almost died too. They'll start to relate to him more and more. Christian, God's been working in your life and your family history to bring you to this point this point right here. And if you're a believer, I can promise you, he is looking over you and saying, because of Christ's work in your life, because of the blood of Jesus over you, you are my beloved child. In you, I am well pleased. And if you've experienced any kind of victory over sin, I mean, I'm not talking about going out in the desert and facing the devil face to face and never committing a sin. No, that's not your story. That's Jesus' story, but that's not your story. But if you've experienced any kind of victory over sin, 
And you have, if you're a believer, you've experienced at least forgiveness. Maybe not mastery over everything, but you've experienced forgiveness. And now you know more about your sin than you ever did before. And hopefully, you're starting to see that you, uh, you are now shunning your sin. You hate your sin. I mean, you may not be a master over it yet, but now I see the damage it has been doing, and I'm trying to break away from it as much as I can. And you're starting to experience victory over sin in your life, and you're ready to talk about God's grace in your life. So go find those people, like the Galileans, who are ready to hear the message and engage with them with however much of the gospel message you know and understand. And when you start trying to share the gospel with somebody and you stumble over all of your words and you find out that you cannot articulate the gospel message, then you know what you don't know. And then you can start learning how to give a very simple gospel presentation. And with your own testimony. And your testimony, well, that's you. You can talk about you, can't you? Get better at talking about you, even if you can't talk about you very well. But you can talk about a few things that have happened in your life. What's the testimony? This is who I was. This is how I met Christ. This is how I am now. That's the simple testimony. Armed with your simple gospel message, your simple testimony, guess what? You can now become the gospel herald. Can you think of one, two, three people in your life that you think might be ready to hear the gospel message? Think of it right now in your mind. Two people, three people. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel and that it has not been ineffective in our lives. Lord, turn us into great gospel heralds. Lord, these people, us in this room here today, Lord, we've got two or three people in mind. And we will pray for them. Pray for those people right now. I'm going to give you 20 seconds. Pray for those people by name. Now, Lord, please give us opportunities. Opportunities to sit across from, to have a meal with, to have some coffee with, some tea with, those people. Lord, help us to be inquisitive people who want to get to know our friends, our family. Help us to ask those good questions. And Lord, please be working in the lives of these people who don't know you, but you know them. Lord, give us a chance to share the gospel share our testimonies this week. Help us to be people who realize what you've done in our lives, so much so that we can't contain it. Turn us into good evangelists. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, you are dismissed.